you ever made a significant decision in faith seeking to trust the Lord, seeking to honor the Lord, and seeking to please the Lord, and out of love for others, love for the good of others, and even yourself, only to second-guess that decision after making it? Have you ever been confident before a decision, but then realized that you hadn't fully considered the consequences of the decision until after you made it? Or before the decision, thought the consequences would be worth whatever the decision was, only to find out after the decision that they weren't. You'll remember from last week, Abram's nephew Lot had slid down a slippery slope from outside of Sodom into Sodom and eventually into bondage. Four kings led by one king named Keterleomer had captured the people and the possessions and the provisions of not only Sodom but Gomorrah and three other nations and had, um, had headed off back to Mesopotamia. And Abram responded by leading a well-trained but undermanned band or army to pursue and overtake an attack and defeat those Mesopotamians and retrieve all that had been lost, including Lot. And when he returned with the spoils of war, he gave 10% to Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem and also was a priest. And then he gave the rest to the king of Sodom, even though all of it was his. He was the rightful owner and possessor of all those things. He gave it all away, and he did so to maintain his own integrity, maintain his own reputation, but more important, he did it so that no one or nothing would bring reproach upon the Lord. And in the end, he gave up a great deal in trusting the Lord, a great deal of wealth, but he did so because the Lord had promised to give him even more. He knew that what the Lord had promised him was much more than he could have ever received from the king of Sodom and and much more than he could have received from the city itself. But at some point he began began to have questions. At some point he either began to second guess what he had done or he began to second guess or actually consider more thoroughly the consequences of his actions. Maybe a little of both. For example, what if Keterleomer and the other kings decided that they couldn't stand the embarrassment of losing and regathered their forces and went back? What would he do? 
Or what if Abram's allies became a little paranoid and decided that they needed to take Abram out lest he get prideful and take them out? Or what if there was another famine? What if there was another famine and then what if the possessions that he had brought back from Egypt weren't enough? Should he have kept those things from Sodom? And what if Lot wouldn't learn his lesson and after being returned and getting all of his stuff back, what if he stayed where he was? Which he did. What did Abram need in a time like that? What do we need times like, in times like that? Abram needed to be assured. He needed assurance. And we, of course, need assurance. And that assurance comes from being reminded of our hope. And it's my desire that tonight, and it's been my prayer, that the reminder we need is going to come in this passage. Somewhere, some way. I've broken it down into three points. It was going to be four. You'll see I put the first two into one. Those of you who are astute and can see the alliteration here. Um, we're going to look first at the, promised, or the promises delivered and faith demonstrated. We're going to look at the righteousness declared and then the covenant determined. The promises delivered and faith demonstrated, the righteousness declared and the covenant determined. The outline is in the back of your bulletin as it always is. And children, your words are where they usually are that you're listening for and count those as we go through. But let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue, all right? Father, would you, in these moments, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that is here in your word. We thank you that we have already heard you speak as we've heard your word read. And we pray that you bless the reading of your word. And now we pray that you bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would grant us, um, grant us grace and I pray that you would grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and your church this evening. Speak to us what you, through which you've already spoken. Bless us. And I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. All right, well, I started the way I started because of verse 1. All right, let's look at, look at verse 1. It, Moses wrote this, After these things, which includes everything that happened in chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not. Abram was afraid of something. And to help Abram in the midst of fear, the Lord appears to him in a vision. And we don't need to get caught up in and make a big deal out of this vision as some want to do. Because it's not important on how the Lord came to him. What's important is that he spoke. The Lord spoke. It was God's word that would minister to him in the midst of the fear. The problem was he had become preoccupied with his circumstances. Who hasn't done that, right? His attention was on himself and his decisions, something in the past that he couldn't change. At the same time, he was concerned about the potential consequences of his decisions, something in the future that he couldn't control. And in the midst of the emotions, he had, he had lost sight of what he knew to be true. 
Does that sound familiar to anyone? How often do you focus on things you can't change and things you can't control and lose sight of what's true? How often does anger or anxiety or discontentment or discouragement or fear or hopelessness, just to name a few in alphabetical order, how often do those things cause you to forget or distract you from what you know to be true? The problem isn't that it happens. Right? It, it happens to all of us. It's natural. It's common. The problem is that we look for answers and we look for comfort in other places rather than the Word of God. And as we look for our comfort and for answers in other places, we, we begin to spiral down more and more into the negativity because the right answers and true comfort only come from His Word. It's God's Word met with His Spirit that ministers to us and comforts us in the midst of our distress. We don't need a vision. We have His Word. And if we want to hear Him speak audibly to us, you've heard me say this before, we just simply need to read it out loud. It is through His Word that He provides what we need. Now, notice what the Lord said to Abram. Fear not... Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God told Abram not to fear because he would protect him. He, wouldn't, he wasn't going to allow anything or anyone to harm him or to cause him harm. Abram would be safe because God was mightier than any of his potential foes. God also told him that he didn't have to fear because his reward would be great. And not just great, very great. And the reward wasn't simply physical, it was spiritual because God himself was his reward. In the words of Paul, Abram could be content. Or in the words of Calvin, he could be sufficiently contented. Why? Because he knew that God would supply all his needs according to his riches and glory. Listen how Calvin sums these words up from the Lord to Abram and their importance to us. He says, by his voice, God daily speaks to his faithful ones. Having undertaken to defend us, he will take care to preserve us in safety under his hand and to protect us by his power. He is the protector of our salvation. He alone is sufficient for the perfection of a happy life for the faithful. We will be truly happy when God is propitious or favorably disposed or benevolent. When God is propitious to us, for He not only pours upon us the abundance of His kindness, but offers Himself to us so we may enjoy Him. What more can men desire when they really enjoy God? Whoever will be fully persuaded that his life is protected by the hand of God, and that, and that he never can be miserable while God is gracious to him, and who consequently resorts to this haven and all his cares and troubles, will find the best remedy for all evil. Not because the faithful are entirely free from fear and care as long as they are tossed by the tempests and contentions and miseries, but because the storm is hushed in their breast. Because the defense of God is greater than all dangers, faith triumphs over fear. And may I add, I would, I would add over anger and anxiety and discontent, discouragement and hopelessness. Again, a short list in alphabetical order. 
But Abram's response was interesting. Because in it we see a glimpse of what Abram believed the reward to be and how he was clinging to it. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. When Abram heard God say that he would be rewarded, he immediately went back to God's original promise of a people in a land. The word reward just... It just jumped out at him. He, and he couldn't understand how he could receive a reward because the war, reward was the promise. And how was he going to receive the promise? Because he didn't have any offspring. And unless a child, unless he had a child, the only heir he had was a servant. And if the heir was his servant, that was not going to lead to him being the father of many nations. And we need to re- realize and recognize this isn't antagonistic. This isn't an antagonistic question. It's not coming from, as Aaron said when we began, it's not coming from unbelief. It's a question very similar to, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? Help my struggle. Help me as I wrestle. He wasn't dismissing the promises. He was gripping them tightly. He was holding on to them, but he was also wrestling with them because his experience didn't fit what had been promised. So what did he do? He went to the promise maker. What better place to go than to the one who had made the promises? And we know it's a question that demonstrated faith because of how the Lord answered. The Lord didn't chide him. The Lord didn't rebuke him in any way. He was compassionate And when he spoke, he once again communicated that his word was sufficient for for Abram's fear and his discouragement. It was sufficient for his faith struggle. And in verses 4 and 7, he simply says, the promises that you've been clinging to remain. I've told you you were going to have a son. You're going to have a son. I told you I would give you the land. And I'm going to give you the land. And in verse 5, God did and said something very important. He brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, him, so shall your offspring be. When Abram needed to be encouraged, when he needed his faith to be nurtured and strengthened and increased, the Lord reminded him of his promise, and then he gave him something tangible to hold on to. Derek Kidner and probably Augustine, Derek probably got it from Augustine, called it a visible word. It's a visible word. It wasn't something that he could touch or feel. But it was something that he could see, something that he could see every time he looked up. So now, if you'll remember, he's already been told his offspring would number the dust of the ground. And now he's told that the, that the offspring would number the stars of the heavens. So whether he looked down or looked up, he would be reminded of how many his offspring would be. 
It wasn't a sign that made the promises any more sure or certain. Because the promises couldn't have been any more sure or certain. But those sign, that sign made Abram more sure and certain. And this, of course, as, as we've said many times before, this is the, the foundation or the origin of the covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of which we are going to participate in tonight. Because baptism and the Lord's Supper, right, through those things, God confirms the promise of the gospel. For, you, for God, God did promise many offspring and said that the promises would be experienced through one particular, while he, while he did promise Abraham offspring and while he did say that the promises would be experienced through one particular offspring or son, which we'll see in a few weeks, was Isaac and not Ishmael. We also know that the promises would ultimately be realized through one, right? the seed. We read it earlier, Galatians 3.16 and also in Romans 16.20, we know that Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And that's why we also know that in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says that all the promises are yes and amen in Him. Because he is the receiver, ultimate receiver of that promise. So baptism is, for us, is a visible, tangible sign that assures us that Christ's blood has cleansed us from our sin and that the Spirit has been poured out upon us and we've been made new and united to Christ. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a vis visible, tangible sign that assures us of the reality of, of the benefits of Christ's work on our behalf. Right? It's a, a sign and a seal of assurance that, that when we come to the table, we feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive Him spiritually when we come in faith. So I have two or three questions. I just want to ask, do you ever have questions? Do you ever struggle with the truths of Scripture or the promises of Christ? Is your faith ever weak? Is your faith at a point of ebbing rather than flowing? I'm actually going to encourage you to do three things. I'm going to actually encourage you to go, remember, and come. In those moments when your faith is weak and when you're struggling, first go. Go to the Lord. Go to His Word. Go to the promise maker. Seek your answers from Him. He has the answers you need Again, in the words of Calvin, the Lord permits us to pour into His heart those cares by which we are tormented and those troubles with which we are oppressed. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to ask. He wants to answer. And secondly, in just a minute, you're going to hear me say when we baptize Renee and Griffin, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember your own baptism and, and know that those who are looking to Christ in faith, that just as you are washed with water, you can be sure, you can be just as sure that His, the, the blood of Christ has cleansed you from your sin and that the Spirit has been poured out upon you. You've been made new and you've been sealed by Him and united to the Lord Jesus Christ. So go, remember, and finally, come. 
It's something we do every week. Come to the table. Come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ where you will hear the Lord say, you've heard the word, now come and have your faith nurtured, strengthened, and increased. Come as I offer myself to you and then look at, touch, smell, and taste the bread and the wine and rest assured of the reality of the work that I've done on your behalf. Rest assured that through my death, you've been sealed by the Spirit. You've been united to me. You are recipients of grace. Go, remember, and come. Now, there's another reason we know that Abram's questions come from faith and not unbelief, and that's due to what Dale Ralph Davis calls Moses' editorial comment in verse 6. Moses said, and he, who was Abram, believed the Lord, and he, or the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Let me read that again. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, interestingly, there are some who believe that uh, Moses was communicating that, and believe the language speaks of the truth, that Moses is communicating that Abram uh, has come to faith at this point, that this was, in fact, his conversion experience. But there are others that believe the language points to something else. They believe that the language seems to indicate that this was not his conversion, but it was simply another moment of ongoing faith. They believe Moses is saying this was another occasion upon which Abram was remaining firm in his belief. And he wasn't just remaining firm in his belief in the Lord, He was remaining firm in his believing the Lord. Derek Kidner puts it this way, Abram's trust was both personal, believing in the Lord, and propositional, believing the word of the Lord. And I tend to believe that he was actually remaining firm as he had been based upon what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11. He left in faith. He wandered in faith. He set up tents in faith. He's been exhibiting faith since the Lord originally called him. But regardless, the importance of the comment doesn't lie in the first part of the statement or the timing of his belief. The importance or the, uh, that we need to pay attention to is what the Lord did in response to his belief. He counted it to Abram as righteousness. In other words, at some point, Abram was declared righteous and was justified by faith. In the words of Calvin, again, no statement is made as to when Abram first began to be justified by believing God, but this one passage does show in what way he was justified in his whole life. By faith. And why is that important? Well, Paul's words in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 answer that question. And since we've already read Romans 4, and we've read uh, verses 11 and beyond in, in Galatians, I want to read the first part of Galatians 3, all right? Paul wrote this, so foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. 
Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abram believed God and it was considered to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that just as Abraham by faith was declared to be legally not guilty and free from his guilt and condemnation of sin and completely righteous and holy in God's sight, we by faith are declared to be legally not guilty, free from the guilt of condemnation of our sin and completely righteous and holy in his sight. Just as Abram's faith that looked forward was the conduit through which he was imputed with the righteousness of Christ and was justified and received all of the the benefits of Christ's work, we, our faith, we are, well, our faith, looking backward, Faith in Christ looking backward is the conduit through which we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ and therefore justified and received all of the benefits of Christ's work on our behalf. Through faith, Abram Abraham was justified and saved. By faith, through faith, we are justified and saved. And it's by faith that we will continue to grow and live as we've been called to live. It continues. It's a life of faith. So tonight, what I want you to do is to go home and when the sun finally goes goes down tonight, look up at the stars. Look up at the stars and be assured of that promise that if you're looking to Christ by faith and trusting in Him alone for your salvation, you are counted among those stars. You are counted among Abram's offspring. Those that are too numerous to count. Well, having been assured of the promise of an offspring, in ver- uh, we now see in verse 8 that Abram wants assurance of the land. Right? He got assurance of of the offspring, so I'm going to ask, right? I want to ask, how about assurance for the land? He asks, he says, O Lord God, how will I know that I shall possess it? And again, we know this question or this request comes from faith and not from unbelief based upon how God responds. If you remember in our study of Luke, this is the same question that Zechariah asked. How will I know? And In response, God did something that Zechariah would never forget, and he closed his mouth for nine months. But here, Abram asked that same question, how will I know? And God does something that Abraham will never forget and something that we should never forget. He entered into a covenant with him. He told Abram to bring him a cow and a goat and a ram and two two birds. And, and somewhere in there, he had to also explain what he wanted them, 
uh, what, him, what he wanted him to do with them because when he returns, he cuts them in half and lays each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And what he did was ask Abram to set up a covenant ratification ceremony. You see, it was a custom at the time for a king of a nation or tribe that had been conquered by, a, by another king or tribe to pledge his loyalty to the conquering king. And this was done through what was called a self-maledictory oath that was symbolized by the conquered king walking through or between the pieces of the slaughtered animal. And yes, children, that's the first time I've said self-maledictory, so you better circle it. Because I'm only going to say it one more time. The conquering king or the sovereign would commit himself to protect and provide for those that he had conquered. As long as they, his servants, were loyal to him and that loyalty was exhibited through obedience. But if the servants rebelled, they acknowledged and even agreed by walking through the pieces that if they failed in their part, that what had been done to the animals should and would happen to them. If they failed in, in their part, they were to be cursed and killed. And you can actually see another example of this in Jeremiah 34, if you want to read somewhere uh, else this week. Well, Abram, having laid out the animals, the way he laid them out, half over against the other, he then sat and waited on the Lord. And he waited on the Lord, and he waited on the Lord, and the heat of the day took over, and it began to have an effect on the slaughtered animals, and birds of prey come down and begin to mess with the animals, and Abram comes through and, and shoes them away, drives them away. And then we read this in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Finally, the Lord appears. But before he ratifies the covenant, he speaks again. Gordon Wenham says this, The deep sleep, the fear, the darkness all suggest awe-inspiring divine activity and are closely associated with the exodus and conquest, appropriately introducing the prophecy in the next verses. The prophecy that's to come and that he speaks includes Israel's 400-year captivity in Egypt. It includes their exodus out of Egypt. It includes the judgment that will come upon the Egyptians and the Canaanites. And it also includes the occupation of the land as promised. And while we don't have time to look at all these things in more de detail, suffice it to say that in these few verses, the Lord communicates something very important. First, He communicates His patience and mercy. We want to see it first and foremost. Secondly, He communicates His purposeful discipline and eventual justice. He also communicates the promised occupation of the land would not happen without suffering. And the fact of 
in the words of Alan Ross, oppression and enslavement were not a threat to the fulfillment of the promises. It was part of the divine plan. Very important to remember. And then right on the heels of this prophecy, verse 17 says, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. And a couple of things are happening here. First, by manifesting himself in a way that resembled and even pointed to the pillars of cloud and fire by which he would lead the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He visually symbolized the truth that we've already seen in Genesis, particularly in the flood. And that is salvation and deliverance come through judgment. God's people are preserved through distress. And God alone is the one who saves, delivers, and preserves. But second, the Lord also sovereignly administered this bond and blood. And He ratified the covenant by walking through the pieces alone. And in so doing, obligated Himself to keep His promises. The sovereign Lord, rather than the servant, passed through the pieces. And in essence said, I will fulfill my covenant promises to you, and if I don't, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals. He bound himself to keep his promises. He had made the promises, now he's making an oath. But again, that's not all. We know from this side of the cross that God not only passed through those pieces and obligated Himself to keep His promises, but He passed through those pieces in Abram's place. So we not only see the sovereign passing through instead of the servant. We see the sovereign passing through the pieces on behalf of the servant. And because we are Abram's offspring, he's done the same for us. Brothers and sisters, God is not only a promise maker, he is a promise keeper. You've already heard us say that tonight. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the price unto death and bore the curse we deserve for our sin and failure to keep our obligations of obedience. And it was also Christ who perfectly obeyed on our behalf. He obeyed on our behalf, and it's His righteousness that's been credited to us. It's always been the plan always been the plan because of Christ it's as if we've never sinned and always kept our obligations or always been holy and as I said when we began living by faith is never easy and our circumstances circumstances of life collide with our faith over and over and over again but when that happens we need to look no further than the cross of Christ 
Because it's there that we're assured not only that we have been redeemed from our bondage through our own exodus of sin, but like Paul, we can be sure as we look at the cross that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because He has secured the promises for us with His blood. His imperishable blood. May you be assured. May you be assured. Let's pray together.